0: The, the job was, was fine, it was, um, it was the hours we were having to put in. We, you know, you'd work a standard, say, 40 hour week, but it wouldn't be unusual for me to do 50 hours overtime a month. One point I'd always make is to go to the doctor if you're not feeling well, because I, um, I've had stomach pains on and off. So I'm laying, laying back and he comes back in with another doctor. And this second doctor has a feel as well, and says, yeah, I would if I was you. And he said to me, I don't want you to panic, but I want you to go to the hospital right now. I could tell straight away, as soon as I got in there, that something was coming. He wasn't in a comfortable position when I went in there. It didn't take him long, to be honest. He, um, and then he just come out with it. He said, You've, um, we've sent your appendix, um away for some tests, and you've got cancer. You've got cancer in your appendix. As soon as i have been diagnosed with cancer, I was like, well, what are you going to do with your life? How are you going to, you know, what are you going to have which is going to counter that, if you like? And the Iron Man was obviously w- all we'd been talking about. Um, and it was a kind of natural conclusion,
1: really. Hi and welcome to There's Another Way podcast with
2: me Adam Halverson and me Pete Dolby and you've come to the place where each episode we will shine a light on authentic people who've chosen an alternative path to their new normal and found another way. Today
1: we've got a conversation with Paul Smith, Dead Man to Iron Man. This is a story about optimism in the face of adversity, and we dig into Paul's incredible story that begins with a stressful career in the police force, followed by a devastating diagnosis and a unique, uplifting and brutally honest approach to cancer. Hope you enjoy. Hey, Paul, how's it going? Yeah, good, thank you. How are yourselves? Yeah, yeah, very good, very good. Where are you, uh, where are you calling in from today? I'm at home, I'm in
0: Pembrokeshire, in a little village called Angle in West Pembrokeshire, where we're living now. We were in um we were in Tenby for a few years, but we um got fed up with the crowd, so we decided to um move a little bit further afield. So I'm sitting looking
2: at the sea currently, so not a bad spot to be honest. Beautiful. Back to your Welsh roots, Paul. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> oh, sounds I sound like a Welshman, don't
1: I? <laughs> 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 Yeah, awesome, awesome. Well, look, thanks, thanks for joining, and um, really, really good to, to have you on. And obviously, um, really looking forward to sort of digging into you know a bit bit about your story. You know, obviously, we'll we'll touch on some of the uh, some of the the book, some of your experiences. Um, but I was just thinking, you know, to to kick off, what would be great would just be just to hear a little bit about your early years. You know, where was home? What was life growing up? and just crack on crack on from there if that's all right
0: yeah sure okay where to start then so i was um brought up in high wickham um went to school in homer green in high wickham did an apprenticeship when i left school Um so I left school at 16 did an apprenticeship and then i moved to reading then in my early 20s to work for thames water um, and after a few years i left there um took redundancy from thames water and it allowed me to join the police so i joined hampshire Constabulary, and i had 16 years um in total in in the police and ended up a detective like a major crime detective um, within um thames valley police is where i finished so that's a real quick potted potted history of me there i I mean, uh, part of what we talk about, we're going to talk about in the book is sort of sporting prowess, if you like. I never really had one. I, I i i was always sort of keen getting out and about type person. I used to surf a little bit um, always enjoyed hiking, going up to Snowdonia and the Lake District, places like that, and kept myself reasonably fit. But the most I'd ever done really was a was a, like a half marathon, something like that, you know. Yeah so just kept myself ticking along really fitness wise and the police was a tough job you know um working as a detective you work long hours you um involved in quite stressful work and it takes quite a toll on you and that 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 um where we'll sort of pick up the story really in 2014 when i was a a detective i probably wasn't in the best place um physically or mentally, if I'm honest, I was just rolling along, just trying to keep up with the job. So yeah, a little bit overweight, not the fittest I've ever been, and um, yeah, just um, living one day to the next at the time.
1: Yeah, what what um what was the transition like going from you know Thames Water into something like the police? You know, it must have been must have been a bit of a culture shock, culture difference. Was it much of an adaptation?
0: Yeah, definitely. Being a police officer was something that I'd always fancied doing since I was a kid. So it was always in the back of my mind. But, you know, you go through life, you get a job, you get a mortgage. And, you know, without being funny, the starting pay for a police officer isn't great. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and you've got to be in a position where you can do it. And what I found, i did quite a good job at Thameswater. I was a manager, I was managing staff, quite big budgets and I was going back to the beginning, and I found myself sat in a room with 18-year-old kids. And as it was in a disciplined force like that, you know, my, although I was more worldly and more life-experienced than them, maybe, my opinion didn't really matter um, any more than anybody else's, you know? So that was that was quite hard to adjust to in in the first instance but once you get through the basic training you sort of settle into your own routine really and you um you find your your niche and, and i think for me as 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 joining as a as a sort of older person into the police in my early 30s i found that it was i could cope with some of the situations a lot easier than maybe some of the, my younger colleagues So you know, you could very soon you you, that people come to rely on you, and your experience comes to the fore. Then you know, with negotiating with people and um, dealing with people, you know, in in a sensible manner. So that's kind of where I sort of slotted into that.
2: I mean, I remember a huge difference being at university uh, at 21 when I started versus 18. Most of the kids were 18. Huge difference. That's three years. So I can imagine, you know, if you're going from 18 to 30, that's a massive leap. And, you know, a lot of people mature massively in that time, don't they? With life experiences and what have you. So it must have given Absolutely. you an, an edge or an advantage uh, when you came to making decisions and, and things like that when you're navigating your way through the police.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um I was never because I I joined to be a police officer. I was I was never really that fussed about getting promoted in the police. In previous jobs, I'd always looked to promotion and getting on. And, but in the police, I just because I joined it late, it was more of a vocational thing for me. I wanted to just do the job, you know, make a difference and and get involved. So I kind of stuck to that and. I did have in my mind that I was going to be a detective from the day I joined. To be honest, so I think you do a two-year probation. But eighteen months into that, I'd kind of manufactured it. So I did my CID attachment, if you like. Um, after eighteen months, and I um, and I basically just hid under the desk when that finished. And I spent the last six months of my probation within CID. So I joined. I then joined the burglary squad and the drug squad. And then started my detective training, you know, to become a, a qualified detective. So my, my plan was, was, was fairly mapped out right from the beginning, really. I knew what I wanted to do and just needed to sort of find a way of making it happen.
1: So was it a difficult decision to go from, let's say, a traditional, like, more corporate job? You know, because you mentioned the pay wasn't very good at the beginning. You know, was it was it sort of a conscious decision, which is, you know, what we're going to have to take a step back to go forwards here. Um, but that, but that's often a step that people don't want to take. You know, because they 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 get used to a lifestyle and then they don't want to they don't want to sort of restart, if you will.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think I was lucky that because I um I took redundancy from Thames Water. I was working in a, a projects team at the time. And we were working on a big redundancy project within the company, and um, I was part of the HR stream within the projects there. So I'd it kind of manufactured. I manufactured my own redundancy, if you like. And and being an ex utility company, I I got a decent redundancy package. So it meant that we could pay off a chunk of the mortgage, and I could then go and do the police job without too much of a hit. And it just happened that Maria um, just changed jobs, at my wife at, at the time as well. So all in all, it kind of, it was, we were able to manage it that way. I think otherwise, as you say, it's a difficult decision to to take to change a career vocationally like that. Um, especially when you're, you know, you're, you're, your life is set up around you, isn't it? And to, to take that step back. It, I mean, it was a difficult it wasn't a difficult decision to make, but it was a difficult move to make because of the uncertainty. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And it was once I did it, I was pleased, you know,
1: absolutely. Well, it sounds like maneuvered it and crafted it quite well, which again, you know, I think, I think a lot of time people can struggle to do that, but you mentioned, um, you mentioned that you weren't necessarily kind of in the best place, you know, obviously if it had been kind of ambition to get to detective level, what, what, was it not what you wanted it to be? You know, how, how did it progress when you got to that, that level that you wanted to get to?
0: The, the job was, was fine. It was, um, it was the hours we were having to put in. I mean, it's very difficult for an ex-police officer not to talk about the politics of involved with policing, but I definitely found in my time the cutbacks which were going on in the police um, made it very difficult, put a lot of pressure on the people that were left to pick up the workload. We'd we'd work long hours. um, We, you know, you'd work a standard, say 40 hour week, but it wouldn't be unusual for me to do 50 hours overtime a month on top. And that's, and, and, and those overtime hours generally, they're not just sort of sitting in the office doing a bit of paperwork, they're pressured hours working with, people in custody or preparing remand files to send people to court or out executing warrants and things like that so the, you know the, all the whole job was quite high stress
2: and you don't leave um, it in the, you, know, you don't leave it in the office when you leave and go home it's playing over your mind it must do if you're dealing with situations like that.
0: yeah absolutely um, you would uh, we would go into the office and on the face of it we worked Monday to Friday, nine to five or eight to four um, and we did one week in four but the reality was you could you didn't know from one day to the next when you walked into the office what would be in the custody block what who had been arrested overnight often you say you'd have a serious assault overnight and you'd walk in in the morning and you'd have to interview those people you'd have to gather evidence you'd have to go out and take witness statements and that person, if you were looking to remand them into custody, they would need to go to the magistrate's court the next morning. So, you just stayed on that day until 2, 3 o'clock in the morning till you had sufficient evidence and a file that you could present to the CPS Crown Prosecution Service the next day, you know. So, the jobs were kind of like that. And um, th- that was unrelenting. And that... That builds up layer on layer, you know, over over time, and becomes quite difficult.
2: I can imagine, and as we go through the course of this podcast, we'll we'll learn how important fitness has been in your life, Uh, obviously as we work through the story. But I guess having a level of fitness in the police would have probably been ideal. But by the sounds of it, you 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 know, with the irregular hours, it was difficult to schedule the fitness and to give you enough energy to be able to tackle all those difficult scenarios.
0: Yeah, definitely. I Anything I did was sporadic at most and didn't amount to much. And I was putting on a bit of weight. I was tired um, and just going from day to day. And yeah, the, the, the importance of fitness to me only become apparent sort of much later, really you know, as 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 time progressed and as as my story progressed, if you like. At the time there I was literally day to day not really having a plan for how I was going to change that.
1: Yeah. Well I think that probably brings us to a good sort of segue to, you know, obviously the um the the book and it's sort of I guess the next chapter after the police, for for people who don't know, you have written an awesome book, Dead Man to Iron Man. And maybe to you know continue the story from the police i mean do you want to maybe give us sort of an insight and, and tell us about that you know you get to detective level pretty stressed etc cetera, etc cetera. what happens next
0: um this was in 2014 so a little while back now i um i was working in a serious and organized crime unit so again working as a detective working quite long hours and this is one of the salient points, I think, and, and especially for any sort of men listening. One point I'd always make is to go to the doctor if you're not feeling well. Because I, um, I've had stomach pains on and off probably for around two years. It could have been. I don't really know, if I'm honest. But for a long time, I was getting stomach pains that were coming and going um, all oh. in the sort of lower right side of my abdomen.
2: How old were you at this stage, Paul? Sorry, again, was it early forties? I was forty-three. Forty-three. Yeah.
1: Well, yeah that's the typical so, male
2: thing to do. You get you you neglect it. You you put it off. You think, well, it's not going to be anything serious, so I'll leave it for now. I mean, we've all had those thoughts, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And for me, I was in a way, I suppose, I was lucky because every time I'd get one of these pains, it would wear off and go away but they were becoming more frequent and I was putting it down to, I don't know, I thought maybe a bit of IBS as I was getting older, you know, irritable bowel, just old age generally, you know, maybe, maybe, you know, I would just add a dodgy prawn, if you like, and, you know, I was having an upset tummy. So there was always an excuse. There's always something that I could put it down to at the time. But these bouts were getting more and more frequent. And one story where it comes to a bit of a head, we went down to my parents. And um, I had really bad stomach ache down there. And I just wasn't having it. We went out for the day. They lived down Bournemouth Way. And we went out and we walked along the beach there at Sandbanks. And I was really sore. But I didn't stop eating or drinking or doing anything different. And on the Sunday, my mum made a big roast dinner. And, you know, I had double L pins, just completely ignoring it. And coming back, I was in absolute agony. And this, bearing in mind, this is from a bloke that would never go to the doctor unless he was literally on his deathbed. I couldn't drive back. Maria had to drive back because I was so uncomfortable. So I was writhing in the passenger seat and I turned to her and said, look, I think you're going to have to take me straight to hospital. She was like, what? What, what are you talking about? It's hospital. What's the matter with you? I said, I don't know. I said, I'm in a lot of pain here. So we wound up going into Reading, into the A&E, and we spent hours in there, and it was a hot evening on a Sunday night, so it was packed in there. And of course, in time-honored fashion, by the time you get in front of a doctor, you're starting to feel better. And I think he gave me a couple of constipation pills, and away I went. And next morning, I felt better, so I got up and went to work. But that was really the first proper indicator that there was something wrong with me but again i still wasn't really accepting it you know and then i think probably a week or two after that i had another bout and i was off work feeling really sick and ropey and and i said to myself if i'm not better after the weekend then i'll um i'll go to the doctor and come monday morning i wasn't well enough to go to work so i thought right yeah, I'll go to, the, this is it then. I'm not, I need to get down the doctors. So I did. I took myself to the doctor. And that was the start of it, really. When I was in there, he put me on the on the couch and, and he had a feel of my abdomen. And he said to me, he said, he says, I don't want you, he goes, I want you to just hold on a second. I'm just going to pop out. So I'm laying, laying back. And he comes back in with another doctor. And he, this second doctor has a feel as well and says, yeah, I would if I was you. So I was like, what's going on here? This is something that's not right here. And he said to me, I don't want you to panic. I want you to go to hospital right now. So he gave me a referral letter. And the next thing I know, I was in Reading in the ultrasound department, having a scan with a consultant. And he had found on the ultrasound, there was a mass around my appendix. And it looked like I was having uh, severe appendicitis. So I was admitted straight away. So it was a bit of a shock. And sorry, um, sorry to
1: uh, to interrupt, Paul. Just, 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 yeah. just for people listening. Just before, were there any were there any other symptoms that just just if it helped someone? Was there any blood? Was there any you know anything like that that sort of was was indicating anything sinister? Or was it just um, just, just no, really, not really just pain?
0: I I think yeah. I think if there had been if there had been blood, I would have taken myself to the doctors. I'm sure of that. Yeah. Um, it was when these pains were coming on, they were like cramps and they would probably be accompanied by an upset stomach. Yeah. But once that had cleared, it would, would start to clear itself up. But this time, obviously it wasn't. And I was having a full-blown appendicitis and was basically suffering from blood poisoning from that. So I was admitted that week for a week in hospital where they filled me with antibiotics and they didn't want to operate because they said it was too infected at the time. So I spent a week on antibiotics, they put a drain into my appendix and after that week my temperature had come down and I was feeling a bit better, the infection was a bit more under control. So they sent me away with some strong antibiotics to go back in a month's time to see a consultant
2: and they hadn't removed the Sorry. appendix at this time, had they?
0: No, they said it was too infected and the potential for complications was too much.
2: Yeah.
0: So they wanted to reduce the infection, basically. Um, so they um, they sent me away and I went back in a month's time and I was achy again and the pains were back. And the consultant said to me, we're just going to admit you um, and have it done. So again, sort of next thing I know, I'm on a trolley being taken up to the bowel ward ready for to have my appendix removed and again they didn't want to do it um, because of the infection but they gave me the choice and i said well, i was sitting there ready to go and i said yes please so they um they removed my appendix which was encased in like a fatty pocket because it had obviously been grumbling for a long time and it went up and i think they took a piece of my liver as well so it was quite extensive what they were what that what they had to do but i had a couple of days recovering and was was back home then and you know straight away i felt so much better i think the reality was i had a grumbling appendix that had been poisoning poisoning me probably for quite a long time like as i said earlier and um, so straight away i started feeling better so you know there you think well, that's it. I'm, you know, I'm done. I'm a bit of a fool. I should have had this looked at sooner, but it's done now, and um, we can. I can get on.
2: And, and there's no doubt in your mind that, that the pain that you'd been having for nearly two years, you said, was a result of that condition. Was it?
0: Yeah, it had to be. Um, other than that, I was. You know fairly sort of fit and healthy there wasn't you know anything else that you could put your finger on that it would be so it was definitely associated with my appendix now it's probably a good opportunity but while we're at this sort of stage to just to talk about the the, the book title you know dead man to iron man iron man is a triathlon i don't know if you guys are aware of that
1: yeah absolutely. Um, but yeah, yeah but, I mean, but good I, Good to explain what it is for people that don't know. Yeah.
0: Um, well, I had a friend who I was working with, who, was this, who I sat next to in work, and he'd just been off to Mallorca and he'd done a, a half Ironman. So an Ironman 70.3, that's called. Now, an Ironman is a company that do triathlons. A triathlon is a swim, bike, run event. So you do all three, one after the other. Um, and Ironman specializes in long-distance triathlons. So you start with a 2.4-mile swim, then you go on to a 112-mile bike ride, and then you finish with a marathon. So that's a, a full Ironman Man, yeah, crazy, I, I, crazy, I, you know, crazy I, I, event. I've really. not
1: done any of those uh, individually, let alone uh, all three in in, uh, in in sequence.
2: I've just got a place at London twenty twenty four London Marathon, and I am Brilliant. panicking about that. And that's just the last leg of the Ironman <laughs> that you just re- and two point five mile swim. That that I, is yeah, I can't even get my head around. Unbelievable! It.
0: It's um. it it is hard to comprehend. Um, and we will, we will talk about that. I'm sure, you know, about how you get your head around something like that. But my friend had done, done a half, a half Ironman. So basically half those distances. So 1.2 swim, 56 mile bike and a half marathon. Still pretty crazy event, you know, all one after the other. That that is tough. But he'd been off to Miorca and he'd done it. And, um, you know i was really impressed and um we were talking because i've been in such a malaise about exercise anyway and not finding the time i was quite inspired by that and i was thinking i wonder if i could do something like that you know to, to, to do a triathlon um and he was considering doing a full because his brother had done two full iron men so obviously in his household, he was only ever going to be a half Iron Man until he'd done a proper one, you know. Mm-hmm. So he had some motivation there to to crack on and do a full. So we, we were talking about it a lot in work. Um, it was an opportunity for me to start thinking about exercise again and getting infused about doing something and maybe even just doing a a, a smaller triathlon, you know, not one of these silly long distance events. So I was just kind of getting my head round to thinking about triathlon. Part of my problem. Thinking about it was fine, but I couldn't swim, really. I was a terrible swimmer. So that was something I was going to have to address. So around the time of my appendicitis, we'd already had these thoughts. I'd already seen him do his half. And um, I was thinking, I wonder if I could do a triathlon. So once I had my appendix out, I felt great. You know, Suddenly I was um, feeling much better. I'd had a bit of time off work sick anyway, because of the time I'd spent in hospital and the recovery time from the operation. So I was feeling quite refreshed. And um, it was a good opportunity for me to kick on. So I started getting out on my bike and going for a couple of runs and then thinking about trying to tackle this swimming and how I was going to teach myself to swim. So it kind of started from there, really. You know i would never done any triathlon before i'd never really done anything like i said before my sporting prowess was a, was a half marathon and and that was the reading half marathon which is flat as a pancake and i think i did that in two hours 19. so it was not even you know prowess wise wise it was just getting around
1: well just just so, to just to set the context an olympic triathlon is one mile under one mile uh swim at yeah. 24 well 25 mile bike and a yeah. 6k run uh, sorry six mile yeah. run yeah so if that's what the olympians are doing it's it's a bit of a difference from a half marathon isn't it
2: and the half the half an ironman it still sounds absolutely incredible yeah from what you said there i mean well not
1: to mention my yeah, my, uh, my brief understanding as well is one of the hardest things about the swim is the amount of water that you can inhale and, and breathe in in the open water
0: Oh, absolutely. I um I used to swim in a in a lake in Reading and I think I drunk half of it. Um, <laughs> and peed it out peed it out before the end of my race. So I probably raised the water temperature by about, about five degrees by the time I got out. Swimming in the sea was horrendous because you would just swallow so much seawater, you know, you'd be you'd be quite sick when you come out. And it's
2: absolutely it's that it's that brutal the open water sea it must sap so much more energy more quickly as well than swimming in a lake yeah
0: absolutely and um the thing with these events is they're um they're mass starts generally so everybody dives in the water at once so you're crashing and bashing into each other people are swimming over you kicking you in the face
1: dunking you
0: so you've got all that to contend with as well so
1: yeah yeah, i hear hear um, like broken noses are quite common and stuff like that
0: yeah, no, absolutely. Um, if you can imagine taking a, a kick from somebody full in the face as you're just swimming behind them, yeah. Yeah, there's no doubt that there's injuries like that happen. Um, so there's there's a lot to think about with triathlon, but that's what makes it quite interesting, you know, and quite an exciting thing to, to, to think about getting involved with. And believe me, at this stage, I was thinking about it, so, you know, there was no how, doubt
2: How serious were you at that point, Paul, would you say? Were you, were you, it was on the cards, it's going to happen, it's just a matter of when, or was it still, you were still debating it in the back of your mind?
0: Yeah, I was still debating it, because the swim, the the swim was a big blocker for me, you know, not being able to, to swim properly. I mean, my swimming prowess was literally swim 10 meters across the pool, breaststroke, with your head above the water, when you're on holiday. That's about as good (laughs) as it got for me, you know? So-
2: We've all been after a few
0: cocktails. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Or just, you know, um, standing in the shallow end, really, just cooling down. So for me to go from that to learning to swim properly was gonna take a lot of effort. Um, And again, it's, you know, it's finding time to fit that in. But this is where you can, in your mind, you know, you can, you can put things off, and you can make excuses for yourself very easily. And I was one of those people, to be honest, at the time. It was it was easier for me to say, you know, make an excuse and not do it, than than to do it.
2: I'm fascinated um, by that. It, it, some people have that in spades—the ability just to just to continually motivate themselves to go out and do amazing things. Or particularly difficult things like you say with triathlons, and some people yeah, have, think about it and think it's a good idea, and like you say, just end up talking themselves out of it. it you know, it's, it's trying to channel that motivation that, that, that thing that pushes you over the line and, and, and say, so No, I'm, I'm gonna do this hell or high water. Um,
0: exactly, and it's having a, some context around it for yourself as well, isn't it? You know, whereabouts are you in your life? What's your game? You know, what's your goals? What are your aims? Um, and I think that. That sort of motivation level, it comes and goes, I think, throughout your life. And it's, like you say, it's just trying to harness it um, more often than not to, to 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 do the things you want to do or, or to challenge yourself. I wasn't at that time in that real headspace, you know. And it was only just seeing my friend do what he did gave me a bit of a kick up the backside to think, hold on, you know, there is more to this. I can challenge myself more. I should be doing more. Um, and 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 sort of moving on from there so that's where my head was at the the time i had gone from being completely engrossed in work and not being able to see anything else because i was so tired and exhausted and just hanging on at work really at the time to seeing that there was more to life and more for me you know that, that that i could improve my health and just take something back for myself so that's kind of where I was at the time but that kind of moved on fairly quickly um because I had a a checkup um a month later again after my appendicitis um at the hospital and um I I assumed it was just to look at my keyhole surgery scars ask me how I was doing and send me on my way because I was Feeling great, you know. I'd recovered well from the operation. um I wasn't feeling any pain. I was out jogging, and you know, thinking about my triathlon training. And um I, um, I went to that meeting, fully expecting just to be in there five minutes. I went there, and and, and again, it's, it's another story. It was a brilliant day, and um I hadn't been on my motorbike for ages, so I grabbed my helmet and I took an hour to get there. Took a nice long ride round. Got in there, was seen straight away. Got called through to the to the office, and the consultant in there, he he took one look at me, and I could see his eyes move down to my hand, and he could see my motorbike helmet. He was like, oh, you've um, come on a motorcycle, have you? So yes, he says, are you on your own? Yes, and I could tell straight away as soon as I got in there that something was coming. I don't know whether it was a bit of police intuition, you know, reading people, but I could just tell that he wasn't in a comfortable position when I went in there. And um, it didn't take him long, to be honest. He um, he had a quick look at my wounds and, you know, yeah, that's all good, come back to the table. And then he'd just come out of it. He'd said, you've, um, we've sent your appendix um, away for some tests and you've got cancer. You've got cancer in your appendix. I was like, wow, okay. Um, well, what do you say to that? Jesus. Um, obviously a shock. And you just you don't know what to think at first. You're like, okay, fair enough. But you took my appendix out, so is it gone? You know, is it that? that? um and then he's, you think well you, as soon as you hear the word cancer what's the first thing that comes into your mind it's like how long have i got mm. you know so you, i asked him that and he was like well i don't really know we need to do further tests and i di- i come out of there knowing that i had cancer or had had cancer i wasn't sure which it was i knew i was going to have to have further tests and they would be in touch within a fortnight to arrange these tests a fortnight so a fortnight yeah so i kind of walked walked away sat outside on a bench outside the hospital and um had to digest the fact that i had cancer and um, but i didn't know any more about it you know
2: i don't I know even how you begin to process that information because it's, it's usually someone else that you hear that from right you know when it happens to you yeah just
0: yeah, absolutely. It's um, it's surreal. I felt like I was in the third person, really. I felt like I was someone else looking at me, sat on that bench, and it was some sort of a movie. That's what it felt like. And then you kind of snap out of that and think, right, well, is this it? You know, how long have I got? Well, have I, you know, what... what what what's the state of my life where where am i at you know and and what am i going to do about it the the difficult the difficulty was in those first two weeks is that i had nothing to tell anybody other than i'd got cancer you know and there was no more information that i could look up i mean obviously you get on get on to your good friend mr google and start looking and it's not a good rabbit hole to go down to be honest no because I, you know you type in appendix cancer and the prognosis was something like 60 percent for two years you know 40 percent for five years survival rate but of course like everything and um, everybody's individual aren't they so there's nothing to say that you're you know that, that 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 applies to you so there was nothing i could glean really apart from the fact that something was going to change in my life you know, something substantial had happened and it was gonna change from that moment onwards. You know, my life wasn't really gonna be the same again.
2: But you're working on such limited information that you are having to wait two weeks for as well, aren't you? I mean, you?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Maria was away. She was in London for the day, so I was there on my own. Um, so I was gonna walk into town and meet her off the train. So I had to do that. And, of course, what do you say to her, you know? So you, you, you just have to – I just have to come out of it and just say, look, I've been told I've got cancer. And, of course, then she was like, what? This is crazy. You know, what does that mean? Are you going to die? How long have you got? And, um, yeah, I don't know. So we were, in, we were in limbo, really, and it was quite difficult just to just to process that. But the way – I think the way I dealt with it was to say that <laughs> – well, I tried to look at it on the positive side right from the beginning and say to myself, "Look, nobody's told me I'm dying, so maybe it's going to be all right. you know maybe it's just an illness you know that can be treated like something else, or maybe it has gone if it was in my appendix so don't panic, just try and relax and you know see what happens
1: but I guess there must have been." There must have been moments, especially when you had two weeks of probably not thinking about anything else. There there must have been moments where your head head goes there, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. You play it out. You role play in your own head. I didn't share any of this with anyone else, really, because there's nothing to really, really say. Um, But, yeah, I would role play every scenario. You know, I'd even... There would even be times where I would um, see the crematorium, you know, with my coffin on the, on the block and everybody, um, everybody there and wonder what that would be like. You know, um, you, yeah, you have some pretty dark thoughts um, and you just can't help it. Um, but the important thing for me was to keep telling myself that I felt good no one was telling me I was dying. So carry on, you know, keep going. Um, and I knew then that was the first switch that changed for me um, mentally with regards to exercise and motivation, if you like, because, you know, the, that was the first kick up the arse I'd had. And I knew that if I was going to have to have further treatment, the fitter I was for it, the, the better that would be. So I made a conscious effort right from that, from the very beginning to start getting my head into exercise, you know? And I think I even went to the swimming pool and did about 10 lengths and nearly drowned, you know? as in an effort to just break some of the old habits and do something, you know, different and try and get on, you know, with the exercise. Well, well, I-, I knew that that would be important.
1: Well, I guess also what you're doing is you're you're shifting, you're shifting your mindset. You know, so you you're forcing your your mind to think on, on a more positive outlet.
0: Absolutely, um, and there's a there's there's bit. You know, if you do any exercise, you know the endorphins that come from it. You feel better for that. You feel relaxed. You can sleep better if you're tired from exercise. Definitely um and all those things they all they all contribute you know there's not one um thing that you can say is gonna is gonna sort your head mentally when you know you're dealing with a cancer diagnosis but there's lots of small things that you can do which can definitely make a you know a big difference to yourself and um i started feeling that right from the beginning you know i started getting my head into the exercise and my mindset was, sl- was starting to change already
2: that's amazing. It's such an admirable approach because I don't think everyone would tackle it that way. And everyone deals it individually in their own in their own ways. I guess no one really knows until you know you, you you get a scenario like that. But the fact that that was your first thought process was right. I'm tackling this head on. I need to be in the best shape I can be to to you know. It's my way of dealing with this. And I, I, what what a fantastic approach. Absolutely.
0: I was. I'm very aware, and I still am, and I was at the time that if somebody did tell me I was going to die, then whether that positive mindset would have sustained itself, you know? And I'm I'm sort of humble enough to, to realize that that would have been a completely different set of circumstances that I was finding myself in at the time. So I just knew where I was and how I could get on. And you say about like handling it different ways, I had to start telling people you know i had to tell work because i knew there'd be some time off you have to tell your family you have to tell your parents you know that's hard that's that's tough they 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 don't they really don't want to be hearing that news and but you know i found that there was a lot of pity if you like for me from other people and a lot of self pity for themselves, if you can kind of get what I mean. And I, I didn't like it, you know, and it used to make me angry actually. And and I think that was partly what pushed me to remain as positive as I could. Because I saw the what what that sort of self pity can do and how much emotional energy can be sapped from you by having a sort of negative mindset, you know, the woe is me kind of, why me, why me? Yeah, precisely, why me? Why not me? You know, it's my story, it's my life. <clears throat> Other people get cancer, you know, I, and, I, and I, I tried to sort of rationalise it like that. I, was, I wasn't a child, you know, you see kids in hospital on the telly all the time, don't you, in, mm. in, in, in wards fighting for their life. That wasn't me. I was 43. You know, I'd had a good life to that point. I wasn't an 18-year-old soldier dying in the trenches, you know, back in the war. Do you know what I mean? There's mm. there's so many people that have it so worse, a much worse off position than I was in. And um, I just felt, you know, this is my story. This is my disease, if you like. It's my body, and I need to find a way through you know, and that was by trying to remain positive and instilling that sort of positive feeling and attitude in the people around me.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's an incredibly inspiring approach to it, isn't it? Um, can, can you just explain what you mean by just on that self pity point there, Paul, you, you mean people dealing with the information that you gave them about your diagnosis, people that were close to you or, or friends or, yeah. Or, yeah. Uh,
0: yeah. Uh, yeah. Family, friends, friends, you know, it, it it would it would feel to me like they were more upset than I was.
1: It almost sort of became um, became their problem.
0: Yeah, and that you know that emotional strain can be so easily ref- you know reflected back onto you. And when you're trying to deal with the, the you know that sort of emotional situation yourself, to have to feel like you need to support other people through their grief mm. because of something that's happening to you. You know, I found that extremely difficult. Yeah. You know. And if if I'm honest, I was a little bit resentful about it. And I probably, on reflection, could have handled some of that a bit better myself.
2: Well you had enough but, going on though, <laughs> to be fair. Absolutely, you know, and
0: I I just didn't want it. You know, I wouldn't countenance it at all you know i just said no you know let's crack on let's get this done let's see where it goes and what what it is there's no point people wailing now because we don't know what's going to happen you know
2: well i like say it's wasted energy you needed to retain all the energy and focus that you you could to fight that yourself you don't want to waste that in other places that didn't make sense for you to waste it
0: no absolutely absolutely so um and that's where the exercise can become quite important because it's generally a, a sort of um it's quite an insular experience and it? it's it's just for you really when you're out on a run or a bike ride you can be with yourself and your own thoughts Yeah, you know and you don't need to um you don't need to be worrying about what someone else might be thinking or even you know heaven forbid up ups you know upsetting someone else's feelings because of the cancer that you've got (laughs) yeah you know so um yeah so they were difficult times and and you know i said it was two weeks but actually it wasn't it was more like two months in the end because the my sort of full diagnosis was just rumbling on Mm. there was options you know they were talking about different things to do but no one was really telling me or could give me any more information
2: was that because it was, it was a fairly rare form of, of the disease or... or, or yeah, yeah,
0: I think ultimately, um, especially back then, and things have changed recently, the appendix cancer I had was very rare. It only um, affects one or two people in every million. Wow. wow. So literally, you know, there's a handful of people in the country every year that, that are diagnosed with it. Wow. So a lot of doctors aren't aware of it, and a lot of people are misdiagnosed or not you know diagnosed until it's too late mm. and especially back then particularly it was wasn't well known but i was fortunate that the specialist clinic that dealt with the type of cancer i had was in Basingstoke which is only down the road from reading and i think relationships there um between the um the consultants in reading who were treating me at the time they referred me to basingstoke mm. Um, and that's when in September of that year, I had an appointment. So I'd gone from July, basically to September before I had an appointment and sat face to face with a consultant that could tell me what was actually wrong with me and what treatment plan I would need to get over it. So when I went to see him, it was quite shocking to be honest, because I still didn't know exactly what was going to happen. But he told me that I had a, a disease called pseudomyxoma peritonei, which had come from my appendix and had spread cancerous cells, basically, on the outside of my organs within my abdomen. Now, what they do is they seed, they seed themselves all over your bowels and the organs below your diaphragm, basically. And they will secrete a mucus, which will grow and grow along with the tumors themselves which will eventually choke up your insides basically and and that's what will kill you um so i needed an operation and a big operation um to remove that the way they can deal with the disease they can only deal with it in a curative manner so basically if they take it all out it's gone if they don't take it all out it will start growing back again so the operation he told me that i needed and it was scheduled for november that year so still a good few months away was they would open me up with a full length cut from my ribcage basically to my my knob basically down right down into my groin um they would have to then look around inside and they would cut away all of the bits of all, all the organs and the things inside me that had the cancer on them the the difficulty with that operation is that they can't say with any certainty what the outcome is going to be until they open you up because scans won't show all of the disease ever so they won't know until they're in there and it can go from opening you up taking away the disease and you know sending you on your way to the worst would be they just open you up have a look and close you up again and and they can't do anything because it's too far spread so you 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 still don't know what your outcome is going to be until you come out of the operation really
2: And, and and this during this period it's four months since your original diagnosis as well
0: yeah absolutely wow yeah so it was, sept- yeah, September, early September, I went to Basingstoke and had the consultation. Yeah. The operation is called cytoreductive reductive surgery, um, and they follow it up with a heated chemotherapy bath. So basically, they fill your abdomen with a hot chemotherapy wash, which is heated to 45 degrees C. So they have to lay you on like an ice sheet so you don't overheat. And then they sort of slosh your body around for a couple of hours and then drain that down. And hopefully that will kill any of the sort of small cells that they, they can't see with their eye. They call it the mother of all surgeries is the, the nickname for it because it's one of the most invasive surgeries you can have, wow. I think, even now. So that was programmed in for late November. So again, I had I come away from there. That was the first time I'd heard any of that, you know, and how serious it was going to be. So you come away from there and then it... If I thought that I needed to be fit before, I kind of knew it now, you know.
2: And was because that the moment that cemented your desire to take on the Ironman or had you kind of already drawn that conclusion already? Or was that the moment you thought, I'm going to take this on?
0: Well, I'd been thinking, as soon as i have been diagnosed with cancer, I was like, well, what are you going to do with your life? How are you going to... You know what you're going to have, which is going to counter that, if you like. And the Iron Man was obviously all we'd been talking about, um, and it was a kind of natural conclusion, really. And I'd been looking at events, and you can do them all around the world. And you know, some people will go on a nice sort of holiday in the sun, do an event whilst they're on away, you know, in a nice sunny place, or you can do one or two in the UK. And I kept coming back to the Wales Ironman. But the, the problem was it's one of the toughest in the world, literally one of the toughest you can do. But I thought, well, you know, I've got cancer. What can be tougher than that? So I was thinking about Wales and I sort of said to myself, if I'm going to do one. I'm going to do a UK one just because it feels more honest. And I'm going to, if I'm going to do one, I might as well do one of the hardest in the world. Uh, and I really challenge myself
2: uh, again <laughs> that's no noble approach how, how many people take that on for the first time for their first ever own one not many do people kind of build up to that typically or do, do some people take yeah well,
0: yeah uh, they do some people dive straight in but a lot of people that have spent a career in triathlon wouldn't even consider one you know wow but again you know that's that's around mindset and your, you know, your ability to train, because obviously to train for a full Man is, is a big commitment. But obviously and it's not for everybody,
1: but obviously but, I'm not sure many people would think about training for an Ironman whilst this sort of news is going on.
0: No, and but, but for me, it was, you know, I, I needed something that was, as much as a head fuck as the cancer, if I'm being polite. Do you know what I mean? I needed something that would compete with the cancer for headspace. And an event like that certainly does that. So by going as big as I could, it meant that I wasn't giving myself any options to, to just do something. You know, I could have done a 10K, couldn't I, after that operation? that would have been an achievement. You know, I could have done a a half marathon or a marathon ultimately, but it didn't feel like there was enough jeopardy there. It didn't feel like there was enough chance of failure, you know, and for me to really commit, I think I needed that, I I needed the commitment, I needed to feel like there was a real chance that I could fail at this and that and that would spur me on and move me forwards you know um we went down we actually had a late september is where or september is when the iron man is and it's sort of second week in september generally so after my di- after my diagnosis we went down for a week to watch the iron man in wales and do a bit of cycling around the course um and just check it out really see what i thought of it and um, I actually found it quite emotional when I was there. On the start line, there's there's over 2,000 people will will do, do an Ironman and will do Wales Ironman. And I was quite surprised. When I was on that start line, I looked around and I expected, maybe naively, that everybody there would be like lean, athletic people on top of their game you know, ready to do this ridiculous long distance event. But the reality is far from that, people there were just ordinary people, different shapes and sizes. Um some people were quite big to be honest, you know? And you just realize that these are just ordinary people doing something quite extraordinary, you know? Mm. And um and that and that was qu- that was quite an emotional moment for me. And that kind of told me, well, you know what, I I can do this. This this isn't something for elite athletes. This is something that if your mind is right and you train hard and you do everything you need to do, then it's achievable. And, you know, watching people come over the finish line, and I stayed right to the end, you know, till midnight. It starts at 7 in the morning and finishes at midnight. And watching people come over that finish line at midnight after 17 hours of non-stop exercise was was quite an emotional moment and i knew ultimately that if i was going to do this after my operation that i would be somewhere at the back there you know i wouldn't be i wouldn't be posting any great times i would be just finishing
2: So that that's what, wasn't what it was about though, was it it wasn't the time it was it was the, the, the completing the mission of completing the iron i think it was somewhere. it was
0: I, I said to myself if i can get to that start line whatever happens you know i've won yeah, I wasn't sure what it was that I had one you know maybe I'd beaten the cancer you know at its own game but I think this was all wrapped up in you know sort of my journey really if you like from you know not having motivation before to suddenly seeing something that meant something you know and would define my my year you know as it was after the operation because I needed something after that operation to, to target mm. because it would have been very easy for me to sit back in a lot of pain and discomfort and not push myself, you know, and not have milestones to hit. So all of these things were going around in my head. And the next day, after the Ironman had finished, the, it opens again for the next year. So i literally got my credit card out and was bang i'm in and paid for it and i was doing it so this was in september my opera's in november i had no idea what state i would be in after my operation quite frankly i didn't even know if i'd be alive oh. after the operation but i'd put a stake in the ground you know 10 months after that operation I needed to be on that start line, on that swim start, you know?
1: And and just um, just a quick sort of slight segue, but one of the things mm. which, um, you know, I see time and time again in, in some people, and I think it's a real key character trait, is, is resilience. You know, whether it's work, whether it's sport, and obviously with the approach that you decided to take, you know, you clearly got resilience in abundance. Where... Where do you think? Where do you think you sort of learned that mindset from? You know, where, where do you think that resilience came from? You know, what what made you different to the people who actually just get beaten by it and and go under? Can you do you think there's anywhere that that actually came from?
0: For me, I was changed by the cancer diagnosis. I know that. I prior to that, I think I may have. While I definitely have been one of those people that procrastinated too much, that thought about things too much, that made excuses for myself and what I was capable of. And if I'm honest, it took that kick up the arse of that diagnosis to open my eyes to what it meant to be alive and what it meant to actually, you know, live your life and and have dreams and aspirations, you know, other than just going to work, you know, paying your mortgage, going out for a few beers, you know. Something more. There's something more in life, you know, and it's, I suppose in a way, it's kind of more on a... It's, it all comes from within you, doesn't it? I'm, I'm not as I'm like a spiritual person, but I think you... You kind of realize after a diagnosis like that that something's got to change and if it doesn't then what's the point what's the point in carrying on living as you were living you know you need to it's they're all cliches you know we need to live every day as if it's your last don't you I think
2: I think when we're younger, we hear that stuff a lot from from our elders or or, or, you know parents or whoever. We we hear we hear that message a lot, but it's it takes a while to realization to hit. Sometimes, doesn't it? I think I think as you get older and you're older years, you become more aware of that stuff. But I guess that's just expedited that massively with that diagnosis. It's just brought it all to the fore, really, hasn't it? Um, And it did
0: Um, absolutely. And I and I didn't look back you know, I needed that sort of positive journey wherever it was gonna take me. And the reality was, you know, even if I failed miserably and I didn't get to do the Ironman, I didn't get to the start of the Ironman, then what what, had I achieved? I'd already, you know, I must have achieved something to move myself forward to a, a better position. And that's all I wanted to do. You know, I wanted my, when I come out of hospital, I wanted it to be a positive journey um and i needed milestones set for myself that i could achieve um to make my life a positive journey because it would have been very easy to just sit back and fall back into my old ways you know go back to work and just fall back into the old routines and carry on and i suddenly thought i don't you know i i don't want that anymore i want i want something different out of life and, and and triathlon as it turned out could have been a number of different things I suppose mm. but that's, that, that just fell into place naturally for me and 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 it was what I grabbed and I grabbed it with both hands uh,
2: That's brilliant and I've got two questions off the back of that uh, just, just one relating to your decision to take on the Ironman first of all did anyone try and talk you out of that any healthcare professionals friends and family try and talk you out of that decision to take on the Ironman given the the health scenario that you were uh, in the middle of. And the second question is around what we just talked about there in terms of how it affected, impacted your decision-making. And and does that still ring true today, years later? Do do you still feel like it? Do do you see life differently and and make decisions differently after the back of that diagnosis? Or was it just around the time that that you're more conscious of it?
0: So the first point, I I found people were quite positive yeah. about it. Maybe in private, they probably thought I was a bloody idiot, you know. But <clears throat> I think generally, people were, were, you know, they were impressed that I was was able to, you know, not just fall back and and just be a person with cancer, you know. And I think that gave a lot of people and my family and some of my friends, you know, a bit of breathing space as well for them because. You know, they could think about something else other than cancer as well. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, People were quite, people were, um, they were encouraging, definitely. Whether they thought privately I could do it or, you know, um, I had any chance of of finishing it it, it, is another matter. But that didn't really matter to me, you know, because I just wanted people to be happy for me and just support me in doing it. And they certainly did. You know, there wasn't a time when I asked my consultant when I was before I went into hospital, whether I'd be able to do an Man, and he laughed, to be honest. And he said, just see how you feel, you know. I
2: wonder how many <laughs> how times people have asked him that in the same scenario. Yeah. fantastic. Probably not. I'm not even sure if he knew
0: <laughs> what one was, to be honest, yeah. but, um, you know, um, I see, I think it's take one, you know, take one day at a time.
1: I think yeah, if it was me, it's, 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 I, I think I would have asked him if I can drink beer. Can I? Can, <laughs> I, can, I, can I? have a pint? Not. Can I do an Iron Man?
0: <laughs> well, and, and on that note, a pint it, it took me about two months before I had my first hangover. Wow. <laughs> so um, yeah, and um, yeah, but a bit of beer. Beer wasn't good to me, to be honest. You know, all those carbs. It's quite a quite a heavy drink when you've had a bowel operation, you know?
2: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I guess the priorities have just shifted, you know, 360 anyway, right? So yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, The the other point you make is I, I do see things differently now, but it's something that you have to work on all the time. You know, it's constant practice, isn't it, life? You know, you're not always gonna be super enthusiastic, super dedicated, super motivated. There are times where you're gonna slip back a bit. But for me, and I do have those times, you know, my default before the cancer diagnosis was always more of a sort of lazy side. Why do it, you know, why do it now when I can do it later? Or maybe never at all, do you know what I mean? That was my kind of mindset. and. That 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 monkey's still on my back a bit, you know. There's, you have to work at being motivated. But since doing the Ironman and going through that journey, I have got a much bigger lust for life now. You know, there's so much more I want to do, and and I will push myself to do different things and try different things and learn new things, you know, that perhaps in the past I would never have done. So it has changed me and it's changed me for the better, if I'm honest. It's sort of asked the question of myself, really, would I go back to post-cancer, you know, not have the cancer in effect? And you know what? It's, it's a tough, it is a tough question, but the reality is I don't think I would now. You know, I've had that diagnosis. I've I've changed as a person because of it, and I'm a better person now. And I know that if I went back and that never happened to me, then I wouldn't be the person I am today. I wouldn't be as fit as I am today. I wouldn't have the, the lust for life um, and, you know, trying new things that, that I've got now so you know no and the cancer's part of me you know it's part of my story and it's and it's it, it's my life so i put i wouldn't go back you know um i I'd, 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 I'd i'm living with that now and i and i'm a better person for it
1: and and just a follow-on question do, how do you find you are now with with other people and I guess sort of what I mean by that is, you know, do do you look at the things that people get, inverted commas, stressed about, the things that they worry about? Do do you look at people sort of who are walking around in a day-to-day life, I don't know, wasting hours binge-watching Love Island or something? You know, is it is it sort of, is it shif- yeah. shifted your... I'm not a fan, by the way, just to make that clear. But, um, (laughs) but um, you know, is it it sort of shifted how you, you know, you look at other people?
0: Yes, it has. It's very easy to judge other people, isn't it, and their lives? And we all do it to a certain degree. And I think a few years back, I was more judgmental maybe than I am now. I have mellowed as I've gone on because I appreciate that everybody's different. I think for me... Because of what I've been through and my experiences, I if I can encourage people to do a bit more exercise or to just look at their lives a bit differently, then I will. But I'm certainly not one to push things down people's throats, you know. I, I do find it a chronic waste of your life. You know, you only get one life. We only get one shot at it. Again, more cliches, but it's all true and i hate to see people who could probably live better like you say just rolling along you know yeah you see it every day my life is defined in a way by the cancer there isn't really a day goes by when it doesn't crop up in some form or another and so you're constantly evaluating where you are what you're doing what the people around you are doing, you know, and you and you reflect a lot and you reflect on what you see in other people. So, yeah, and it helps me. If I see other people and I see things I don't like, it, it helps me to reflect on myself, you know, and address those traits in me, really, you know, and be a bit more self-aware.
1: Yeah, uh, absolutely. And I know we're sort of cutting away from the sort of the, the, the story a little bit, but what, what I, I guess I'm sort of... Fascinated in is, you look at health and fitness. If we if we go down that route, and you know you've got twenty five percent of the UK being obese, forty percent being overweight. One okay. of the outcomes from from COVID was was how much you know weight and a, and BMI over a certain point was was a huge factor. And yeah, I, I suppose. what why do you think so many people do take 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 health take fitness for granted and I suppose do, do you think through the journey you've been on it's it's shifted your view on that
0: yeah it certainly shifted my view and I'm a lot slimmer I'm a lot more aware of my fitness now I do a lot more generally day to day um to keep myself in shape I think the point you make about people in general is life's too easy isn't it the modern world is very comfortable and It's very easy to put on weight if you're not careful. And I I always look at it that if if you go through your life and nothing happens to you, then that's fine. But if you're overweight and unhealthy and you get a cancer diagnosis like I had, your recovery is going to be so much more difficult that... It's just, you know, it's just that awareness, isn't it? That life isn't what it is today. We could all be run over by a bus tomorrow, couldn't we? In reality. So what are you are doing in your life today to make the most of it?
2: You it's, know? It's, it's very easy to take things for granted, isn't it? Things that we you know do every day on a daily basis, we just assume will keep on happening. Um, and, you know, it's not... Absolutely. Some, you, you get news like that that... Um, yeah, that it really realigns your, your priorities and your outlook on life, really.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And um, I can only speak from my own experience, you know, and that's exactly where, where I was and, and what happened to me. It's part of the reason why I wrote the book, you know, was to, to tell that story and to prompt people maybe and remind people that, you know, life is precious and... We get one shot at it and just make the most of it, you know, make the most of your life and do what you want to do, you know, but don't, you know, fitness and health and well-being has to be, you know, a big part of that.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And obviously we want to get back to the, you know, what happened next. But I think, I think one of the, um, the bits I love about the book, because I think it resonates so much in other areas of life is you. You talk about, uh, and I suppose we're getting into the training element a little bit. But we, you talk about breaking down phases of the race and and working on those phases and and the small progressions is what leads you to the to the biggest prizes. I think was was, was the wording or, or something around that, and I'm sure you. Yeah, can't...
0: that's exactly right.
1: Yeah, uh-huh. that's it. yeah,
0: that's um, that's exactly the, the the way it is. You can't look at any endurance event. You can't look at the whole. You can't look at the, the the finish line because it just overwhelms you. You know you have to break it down, um, and you have to break each part down into into um, bite sized pieces that you can manage. And that's the only way that you're gonna you're gonna progress in in, in something like that. Is to, is, is to do that. That's exactly what you said there was exactly right.
1: Absolutely. Well, and, and I suppose to so, so to get back to then what, what happened next and where, you know, so you signed up for the Ironman. What, what happened next?
0: So that was in September. So I had till middle of November, November the 22nd, I think, something like that. I went into hospital. So I had a couple of months. So I signed up for a 10 mile race, which was the weekend before I went into hospital, which was like a fell running race in Devon. And I just carried on my training, and I started like proper triathlon training plan. Then, so I started addressing my swimming, and and, you know, and I found the swimming, although I'd never enjoyed it because you know I just never been a fan of swimming. Even now, I'm not a huge fan of swimming.
1: I tell you, I tell um, you why I didn't enjoy it. It's because it's shit.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. It's, um, it's monotonous. It's frightening. Because you feel you could, you know, you could suffocate at any moment, um, and it's hard.
3: Yeah.
0: And those three things together, they don't make a good, you know, good fun event, do they? Um, but just by addressing that, you know, I did find, you know, I'd come out of the water after concentrating on 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 what I was trying to achieve with the swimming, and I hadn't been thinking about cancer at all. You know, so these these little um, training sessions were little oases for me. Of, of calm and sort of, you know,
2: tranquility away from the council, if you like. Why is um, that important? You, you're in the moment and, you, you know, you focus absolutely. on living in the present. Cause I, I know you're, you're a snowboarder. <laughs> I find yeah. the snowboarding, it's the same thing. You're, you're out and about and you're not, you're not caring about anything that's going on back home or, or on your phone. You're just out in nature and enjoying living for the minute. And do you think that's something similar with the swimming? Obviously you weren't that comfortable with it. it was something you had to work at. So you're just there in the present and making the most of that right there and then.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, it is, it's being present and, <clears throat> and concentrating on, on what's at hand, you know, and not filling your mind with other things. Um, and swimming is great for that actually. Um, Although, you know, know, I can moan about it as much as I like, but it's probably the one thing that I did that gave me the most escape, you know, from what was going on. So I'd started this triathlon training programme and um, tried to get in as good a shape as I could before, obviously before this big operation that I needed. And so two days before I was down in Devon running this 10 mile sort of cross country race, and I went into hospital. I think, just for a bit of context, I I was 86 kilos kilos when I went into hospital. And when I come out of hospital, I was 78 kilos. Right. So you can, it just gives you a bit of an idea of the sort of how your body sort of degrades, if you like, over three weeks in hospital, you know? Right. Um, it was a, the operation was extensive, I had 10 hours of surgery. I had the right side of my large intestine removed. I had uh, an organ which runs across the front of your abdomen called the amertum that was taken away. I had a peritoneal scrape. So basically the skin, which covers the sort of inside of your your body, if you like, they scrape that away to to, to get rid of um, any cells that were on that. I had a piece of liver removed and I had the hot chemotherapy wash. So I was in surgery for 10 hours Jeez. and I was in intensive care for 24 hours. And um, I woke up in intensive care, yeah, 24 hours later. I think I had something like 11 tubes and drains coming out of me. I had an epidural in my spine for, you know, pain relief. So that was pumping morphine into me. I had a feeding tube because um, I wouldn't be able to eat anything for a couple of weeks, which went in the top of my chest and pretty much into my heart. I had drained, five drains, which were coming out of my abdomen, which were draining the chemotherapy fluid and the, 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 just the fluids from the, from the operation. I had a catheter, I had, I, di- I didn't know it at the time, but I had a, a tube up my bum to hold my bum opens. <laughs> So when I eventually I did have to go to the toilet, I didn't strain. Um, I didn't even know that was in there. I had a nasogastric tube, so that went into the stomach to drain stomach acid, you know, into a bag, basically. So pretty extensive operation and difficult to kind of you know, to, to recover from easily. The reality is when you wake up in intensive care, that you have to before you can go back to the ward, that you have to get out of bed and stand up. So in that first 24 hours, the nurses were helping me shuffle to the edge of the bed and sort of stand up on my own two feet for a few seconds just to prove that I could do it.
2: I've just opened but the book, yeah. Paul, at the back um, with the picture of you in the hospital bed with all the tubes and I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, I guess that's right in the midst of it. You look out for the count and, yeah, I can imagine moving from there it must have been horrendous.
0: Yeah, it was agony and even with the morphine to be honest and mm. morphine's horrible because it kind of takes you out of your body a bit but it's you can become very dependent on it very quickly mm. Um you get very itchy very sticky um hallucinating and um, and um i had a, a little pump so i could press it there's a green light come on and i'd press it and then you had to wait like 10 minutes or something before the green light come back on and you could press it again so you just sit there all day staring at that, waiting for it to be mm. uh, waiting to come back so you could give it another press, get another dose. Mm. But so, the reality is, you know, you have to be moving straight away. You know, the the the, the thinking now is that scar tissue, you know, works will recover better if you're moving your body, you know, and not just laying in bed really in one position. So very quickly on the ward that I was having to get up. And was with the physios was like shuffling up and down the ward, you know. And that was the first sort of movement I had after the operation.
2: And have you over the years since or subsequently, Paul, have you met many people who have had very similar condition or similar prognosis as you did? I think from your book, you said there was a a guy on the ward that was maybe slightly ahead of you in terms of his um, his progress. But have you met many people that had similar similar uh, diagnosis to you? I am. Um... Once once you
0: sort of come out of hospital, you start looking at things. And I'm in Facebook groups. I've met people when at my annual scans that I keep in touch with. We're, we're, we're quite an exclusive club, to be honest. You know, there's not many of us. Yeah. Um, and just a few weeks ago, I went to the Basingstoke Patient Open Day for pseudomyxoma. And I did a, a talk there actually, just mm-hmm. telling them about my journey, um, like, like I'm, I'm chatting with you guys today. Um, and it was nice to meet people there as well, you know, because you 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 think you're doing all right, but it's nice to be able to, you know, see how you're faring compared mm-hmm. to other people, you know, and and just just to be have a bit of camaraderie really with other people that have been through the same thing as you have. So yeah, there's a few people that I keep in touch with, yeah fantastic the 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 thing with with this disease is it's a sticky one and you know the chances are it it will come back it might come back in six months or it might come back in 20 years you don't know you know so you have to be monitored and there are people who are dealing with it at all different stages you know more advanced than
2: where I am currently. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, I mean, I, I know you mentioned uh, the the cancer of the appendix is very rare. What would you say two two or three per million? Um, but yeah, you know, I think we've all, sadly we've all got people in our lives that are suffering from some form of cancer or other. Or, or it seems to be prevalent everywhere, which is. Uh, yeah, it's it's tough. It's a it's a tough disease. Um, so the more it it,
0: yeah. it definitely is, and you know, and all the more reason then to, you know, to 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 listen to my story, you know, and yeah. and reflect on that, and and to think about your life because I think you know I think the the statistics are like fifty percent of us really are going to have some sort of cancer in our lives,
3: yeah.
0: you know, and they have to deal with some sort of illness of that type. So. It's very real and, um, you know, it's not about being morbid, I don't think. It's just about opening your eyes and your mind to, 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 to what life is, you know, and what, um, and, and what you can make of your own life, really.
1: Well, I think what I, um, I heard, I've, I've been listening to Peter Atiyah's book recently, um, I'd recommend it if if but he he goes through what he calls the four horsemen of, you know effectively the the the, the diseases you don't want uh, and something I learned recently actually is that with cancer you can actually do almost everything right and still just be unlucky you know when when you look look at things like yeah you know, a lot of diseases preventable but I think that that was a real eye opener for me which is you know you, you you could be fit you can eat well you can you know be mentally in a great place, but you, you can you can just be unlucky and
0: yeah, yeah, absolutely. And if you if you have a cancer, you know, there's a lot of the talk about cancer is about you know fuck cancer, you know, let's fight, let's beat cancer, you know, which is a it's, on the face of it, you know, it, it makes sense, but. Having sort of lived through it, I kind of mellowed on that, really, because I feel that I was never fighting cancer, if you like. The doctors did that, were fighting my cancer. What I was able to do was to prepare my body and my mind to be in the best shape it could be to allow them to treat my cancer. And that side of it, you know, no one should be made to feel bad that they didn't beat it. Do you know what I mean? Because I don't think you know. It's cancer is, is part of is a mutation of your own body ultimately.
3: Yeah.
0: You know, it's not an invading, um, a, an invading illness or virus or something. It's part of your own body, um, and you can only deal with it in in the best way that you can Um, and no one should you know be made to feel bad for you know if only they done something more they could have beat the cancer the point you make about being uh, you know and you can be unlucky is is exactly what it is it's a lottery you know Mm.
1: yeah yeah well so um so what happened next then so obviously you know uh, we were just looking at the image with with the tubes and one you didn't even know about up your ass (laughs) (laughs) well
0: that 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 shocked me about a week later when i was laying in bed and and um and i uh, and i had an explosive um (laughs)
2: episode but that's what i love about your book but it's what is warts and all and for someone that's not been through that or had any of those procedures done? I, I think that's really important. The fact that you brought those to, to light and shed some light on that, because not everyone people don't talk about this stuff. And I think it's brilliant that you've included it all. And it's it's very graphic at times, but I think that's really yeah part of the important I, part of the message. Oh, I did
0: feel sorry. Sorry, Pete.
2: Go on. No, that, that, yeah, no, that was it. That was it. I just think I just think it's a, an important part of the message of the book and your story.
0: Yeah, and I, you know, when I wrote it, I did think as i was putting things down on paper that what's the point in not being as honest as i can be to myself you know and to the book and so all of them stories all everything that happened to me i'm very proud of the fact that i can look at that book and say everything in there is a hundred percent true yeah you know i didn't downplay anything and i didn't play anything up it's all as it was you know and i've tried to Say it with as you know as much sort of humour and honesty as I can because that's how I dealt with it. You know,
2: yeah, I think when that comes across. It's a roller coaster, isn't it? I mean, I can I can only imagine from reading the book, but it, it, it's just a true roller coaster of your. Journey. Yeah, I mean,
0: you are at your lowest ebb when you are standing next to your bed with your legs shaking with a nursing assistant wiping diarrhoea off your testicles with a wet wipe <laughs> <laughs> you are genuinely at your lowest ebb there i think you know <laughs> there's only one way up in there and that's up <laughs>
3: yeah Yeah. good point yeah
0: <laughs> yeah so um yeah and, you know there's a lot to be grateful for in life and there's a lot new to laugh at to be honest and um, you know you've got to you know, the, well, well, I I felt like I had to see some humour in some of that, you
2: know. Yeah, I, I, and and absolutely be grateful for, for for a lot in this world, but also the people that, that and the jobs that the, the wonderful jobs that they do um, as part of the NHS, caring for people like yourselves when when as and when you needed it. And I know you mentioned in the book a couple of times, you know, the nurse squeezing your hand to help you through those difficult moments. I mean, that that's just you know you, you can never forget that kind of assistance, can you?
0: Yeah, no, and it's you. You realise about humanity then, yeah. You know, and 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 how kind some people are, and 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 the work that they do. You know, I saw it a bit in in my role as a police officer, but it's only when you're on the receiving end of that, and like you say, you need somebody to hold your hand because it hurts and it's upsetting. It's, that's when it really hits home, you know, that there are very kind and caring people in the world that genuinely genuinely want to look after you
2: and it's a travesty for me and i completely agree with you and we touched on this earlier on where there's there's a proportion of people in this country that focus on the love islands of this world when there should be a show dedicated to people that are doing wonderful things like that and caring for people when they really need it
0: yeah absolutely and you know we can all be guilty of living vacuous lives at Mm. some point <laughs> you know, yeah. Um, so yeah, so three weeks I was in hospital, and um, and when I come out, I could you know I could barely. I, I, I knew I had to start moving. I had um I, I, my training plan that I was going to do for the Ironman was six months long, and it was a just finished program. And it was a book called um, Be an Iron Fit. It was called. And it had three programs in it, which was like competitive, intermediate, and just finish. And so it was the just finish program that I was going to do. And it, when you do the program, you train six days a week. And you have Mondays off and you tra- train the rest. And then on two days, you train twice a day. So it's, it's full on. You know, you, there's a lot to do. And you're running, cycling, and swimming. But it starts off very gentle. So you'll start with... A 15-minute jog and then a 15-minute bike ride the next day. But the whole point of that is you build up and so you avoid injury and you build your fitness gently because it's very easy, isn't it? And we've all done it to go rushing off down the road or leave your training far too late um, and then wind up. Pulling a muscle because you've you've been overstretching.
2: We've all done it, you know? and it's it's easy yeah, to just throw yourself straight into it. But it's conditioning, isn't it? You've got to build yourself up gradually, especially for a a, a race or a you know physical event of that magnitude. Yeah,
0: that's right. And I, so I had basically I had three months to get myself to a position where I could start that training plan. Plan start training three days uh, six six days a week but at the start of that three months when i come out of hospital i literally i i you know i could walk 100 yards down the road and back and i would collapse on the bed then in agony you know and then, then my first walks out of the house i literally would be clinging to the next door neighbor's fence you know wow. hanging on for dear life I don't,
2: um, there must be moments that when you cling to the neighbor's fence when you can't even get down the street without being absolutely exhausted that you, you must have had doubts about your your desire to do the the race at that point it must have been really tough
0: you do wonder but i was still in the right headspace if i'm honest and where i was at that moment it didn't matter what was happening in a month's time or two months time or three months time do you see what i mean it was kind of like i was living in the moment then trying to deal with that little walk to the end of the road and back or around the block and back. And every day you'd have setbacks. Of course you wouldn't, but pretty much every day I would be doing a little bit more. So it would be, you would take a positive for that. And then your, your mindset then is, is, is concentrating on those positive gains. And so you're nibbling at, at each part of it as you go forwards. So I couldn't look to the Ironman start line. I just had to look. Mm. The furthest I would let myself look would be the end of that week and what I wanted to achieve that week.
1: But I th- but I think yeah. that's that's such an important point because what this podcast is about is is showing people there's another way. But that doesn't mm. necessarily mean that it's it's not saying it's an easier way. And I think you know what what often a lot of people do is procrastination sort of perfection stops action because i think we're sort of groomed at the moment to sort of feel that you can hack your way through things and you know everyone watches a rocky movie and there's a montage which happens in 30 seconds and people don't realize that it's those small steps incremental steps every day and just taking that action you know each each step and you you do hear this from a lot of ultra runners and you know the people who do these crazy endurance things is is those 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 baby steps
0: uh, yeah absolutely i think part of the problem is that the world nowadays is so instant and it mm. like you say instant you've only got you know the reality yeah. you'd, uh, the influence would have you believe that you could step in the gym and get a six pack within a couple of months you know yeah and it just doesn't work like that and i think i think people get um discouraged because they don't see results fast enough
2: yeah
1: but do you you feel Uh, that do you feel that that on the journey you did when you you know you could only walk 100 yards did you did you know that because it must have been times i mean you know especially let's say older generation very you know some people are very proud you know and it would just piss them off that they can't they can't do what they need to do you know how did you know did you bow with that or were you pretty cognizant that it was a case of actually i've just got to take a step at a time
0: well i knew i i did know that it was a step at a time because of what i'd been through in hospital and the pain i was in you know i was still i I knew that i was going to have to train and compete through quite a lot of pain and i had to kind of deal with that in my mind as well that, that was that was that was quite a difficult realization at first because i thought that would ease and it did but there was always a discomfort that i had to cope with and contend with so you know you, you i had to sort of address that in my mind and to allow myself to move on so and because of that i couldn't get too far ahead of myself and i think because i knew where i'd been and what i'd gone through I, I, I could, I had to be kind to myself in that sense. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't push myself too hard, you know, or give myself too much of a hard time. Um,
2: fine balance isn't it between pushing you to your limits, but also understanding, you know, your, your natural exactly. healing, healing process. And for me,
0: I was risking, if I went too hard, I'd risk a hernia or, you know, because obviously I had this massive scar on me. Mm which was only just, you know, healing, I had to let that do run its course as well. And the last thing I needed, if I was gonna be doing an Ironman, would be to have a hernia that needed another operation in six months time, you know? Mm. So I had to temper everything I did around how my body was, and I had to listen to my body and learn what I was, you know, what my body was gonna be capable of. And if I needed to um, sit back a bit, then I'd have to do it. Mm. You know, and that was enforced as well, really, by myself, by my body. You know, it wasn't, my mind couldn't just tell me, get over it and crack on. So I did have physical blockers, which kept me in my place, if you like, you know, and stopped me from, from worrying too much and feeling too sorry for myself that I was missing out.
2: One of my favourite proverbs, I'm not into proverbs massively, and it might be a bit cliche, is a journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. And I use that all the time in different walks of life. But I think what you're saying here is, that you're doing that, you know, it's such a massive level, you know, just just even be able to walk down the street, you know, a sing, literally a single step at a time, which is, is unbelievable, really. And it was probably
1: yeah. a huge... A, actually, almost a massive positive about the situation because most people would give themselves a hard time that they couldn't accelerate fast, whereas actually you've you've got that limitation, so you accept it and you and you deal with it.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and it was a positive journey. You know, every day I was doing something more than the day before, and it might have been just going a day without shitting my pants. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was simple things like that sometimes, but they were all positive. you know, and it was every, every, and I could gain strength from that,
3: yeah. you
0: know, and I could move on and I could film myself moving on from the horror of the operation and the cancer diagnosis to a better place.
2: And you felt in the three months then you were at a point where you felt you could then begin that, that program to get you to over the line at the Ironman.
0: Yeah. And it was, it was, it was about that. I I started the program that, that, that on the day I wanted to start it. And you know what, I've got my, um, training diary. I, I, I filled in a training diary and I've got it in front of me here actually. And I was looking at it before we come on air and it was, um, it says on there like my first training day i started with a swim because i knew i hated it and i didn't want to do it yeah. so the first thing i put in the diary on that monday oh that no, monday was great because monday was a rest day so on the tuesday i um it was a swim i scheduled a swim and i went to the swimming pool and flailed my way through a few lengths you know mm. but then then i was in it and from then on I was training six days a week.
2: Unbelievable. And
1: and just a uh, slight segue, but you know, obviously, there's other people around you at this point, and you know, you mentioned trying not to shit yourself, and you know, but I guess, I guess, for the people, you know, you mentioned Maria earlier, you know, how how was it for her? You know, especially in these early days when you know you were trying to trying to take these baby steps, and I, I, I'm sure, like most most guys were you a pain in the ass to be around or, you know, what, what was it?
0: Oh, there was, yeah, there was probably, um, moments. I, I, you know, reflecting on myself, I don't think I was was too bad, (laughs) but, um, she was great to be honest. And she encouraged me all the way. And she actually does have a very positive mindset and she always has, and she's been a go-getter for, all, for her whole life ever since i've known her and she has pushed me and us to do things that potentially i probably wouldn't have done in my you know in my life as well so her attitude was infectious as well and i could feed off that and she did quite a lot of the training with me especially in the early days when it wasn't too onerous she would come out and run with me and do bike rides and and, and and that was nice, you know, because it was to have a bit of company as well. Um, and quite frankly, if anything had happened to me while I was out, at least someone was there to, mm. to, 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 to look after me. But she was very positive and encouraging. And she always, if I was having a bad day, she would always tell me to reflect on where I am now, compared to where I was when I come out of hospital, you know? Amazing yeah I, I mean brilliant and as you know she's she's a big part of the reason why i i, I went on and, and stood on that start line mm. because she supported me we went down to to, to tenby in pembrokeshire where the iron man is a good few times actually we went for weekends we went for spent quite a lot of a holiday time that year in the area um, so i could ride the course on the bike and swim in the sea where the course was going to be, and things like that. So she she facilitated all of that with me and for me. And um, so she was great. You know, couldn't have asked for more to be honest.
2: And, and you feel do you feel like you've come out the other side of of this incredible impactful event in your lives even stronger than you, you probably would have done before?
0: Yeah, absolutely. We um, you know we've done so much more together. We um, after the Ironman. We were thinking of moving down to Pembrokeshire then um, and having a change but Maria um, was offered a job in Geneva in Switzerland and um, we decided to move to France and we lived on the in France on the border with Geneva Um, and I took a career break from the police and we went out and we were out there in the end for five years and we lived three years near Geneva and two years nearly in Chamonix in the Alps and you know we might not, if it hadn't been for the, the cancer diagnosis, we might not have taken that mm-hmm. chance. You know, it was about taking opportunities that life offers you and, and, and grabbing them with both hands, really, and experiencing something different. And um, so, you know, she was, I think she had reflected on everything and and had had a similar feeling to me, really, about, you know, living your life to the full so there was lots happened to us since then you know we've started mountaineering together we climbed mont blanc um we've done other um triathlons and different events you know since and um it's just constantly in- encouraging each other to, to to move forward and do different things you know
2: sliding doors isn't it like you say if that hadn't happened maybe you wouldn't have spent those five years abroad and what what I know you've clearly had some impactful massively hugely um, seminal moments in your life but what did the five years abroad do for you do you think did, what did you learn from that did, did, were there a lot of positives you took out of that
0: yeah definitely for me I was I was back at work um, in the police they were great you know, they give me a desk job so, you know, um, I could return to work and carry on. But I took the career break so we could go abroad. And it, it just gave me the headspace that, you know, just to, to, to reflect on what I'd been through and the journey that, you know, that I'd been through that last couple of years. And it just meant that there were so many opportunities to to be out in nature, out in France, in the Alps, it, it, it had a, a big impact on, on, on me um, and opened up my love for hiking and mountaineering and climbing and things like that. So, you know, lots of new things have happened for me since since we, we've come back from France. And it's, and it's really it's all down to being in that environment. And you know, just experiencing what living in a different country can give you, really, mm. and especially living in in the mountains.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: And obviously, since since coming back, you you've had quite a career change. Uh, you know, I think, it, and you know, obviously, since since having the battle with with cancer that you did, and you know, you, you've you, you've you've I guess taken a bit of a different path and. I guess my question is, is, you know, why would you say, why would you say that is? And, and I, I suppose, how are you, how are you finding it?
0: I was, we, I've, I've always considered myself quite fortunate, really. Maria's, you know, if I'm being honest, has got a good job and that takes the pressure off me. Um, and she's been fantastic in allowing me to do the things I want to do and sort of discover myself, if you like, um, when we came back from France we moved we did move down to Pembrokeshire for that lifestyle change I had the option to go back to the police but I chose not to I didn't want to go back i I'd, I'd you know I'd had a good time in the police and I enjoyed what I did but I didn't want that pressure that day-to-day pressure of of and of that difficult work again so I've been fortunate you know down here now i I volunteer for the lifeboat. I'm a lifeboat crewman in the village where we are. I run a, a, like a holiday let down here and that's what I do for a living. And it gives me freedom to keep doing the fitness things that I love and sort of living a much more kind of relaxed life, doing the things that I want to do. Um, And I am fortunate. So i've been in a position to be able to do that and i've got a wife that supports me to do that but you still have to be able to relax into that you know it's not easy to to go from a a, a career which was very difficult um and all consuming to to having well you never have nothing in your head but you know to to be in a, in a position where you can relax and think about other things the the, the danger of that is that the old demons come back to haunt you you know the cancer starts filling your head a bit more again you you know you can become anxious and and worry about other things but like i said before life is a constant practice and every time i feel myself you know slipping i remind myself um how lucky i am to be alive and 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 um, what the next adventure might be. So, you know, that's kind of how I position my life now, really, and how I move on.
1: And this is going to sound like a bit of a weird question, but, you know, after having a stressful time in, in the police, you know, like, like you said, as good as it was, and, you know, obviously with the experience with with, with the cancer, did you, did you uh, I'm trying to think how to word this correctly, but did you almost have a bit of a moment where you're like, hold on, like I'm actually entitled to enjoy myself here,
0: yeah, I suppose so you could <laughs> that that's um you know I'm reticent to say sort of yes straight away to that because that could be perceived as being selfish, but it isn't you know everybody deserves to you know have a good life or and and, and a and a life without stress, and why not you know i I work hard now to put myself in that position. So yeah, why not, you know, let's uh, just, yeah, live your life as best you can and, and, and be grateful.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So another sort of question on that note is, has your vision of success or achievement or even wealth, whatever that word, necessarily means do you think that's evolved since this experience
0: yeah definitely i mean like i said we're not in a you know we're in a, a fortunate position financially if i'm honest and but i I'd, i I'd, career-wise yeah definitely for me i'm not i don't chase it anymore i've got no interest no interest at all Um, I volunteer um, with the army cadets. There's something else that I do now, you know, which is brilliant, but I don't have any aspiration for promotion there either. You know, I just enjoy doing what I'm doing and enjoy life. You know, um, if I can add value, then I will step up and I will do that um, to the best of my ability. But I don't feel any pressure or a pressure from anyone else, or what anyone else thinks of me. Really, you know, I'm quite comfortable in my own skin now, and with the with the, the sort of lifestyle that I'm leading. And I wouldn't want the pressure of of the sort of corporate life again, and that, that I may have sort of the treadmill I was probably on previously.
2: Yeah, I, I can I can totally understand that, um, Paul, as well. And um, when you look back on your life so far, Paul, would you say you have any regrets at all? Anything you'd do differently?
0: I would have given myself that kick up the arse sooner.
2: Two two years earlier, yeah.
0: Yeah, or well, um, 10 years earlier, to be honest.
2: I, and I think
0: my 30s, if I'm honest, sort of passed me by a little bit. I was working and enjoying work, but the good things in life, like snowboarding
3: yeah
0: like you know being out and about i would kind of forgotten i would forgotten what i enjoyed in my 20s and it was only you know after everything that happened to me that i sort of rediscovered that mm. so if i was going to look back now i would tell myself much sooner you know to 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 reprioritize and start enjoying life and you know and and living life to the full really
2: yeah, there's a whole section in the book about your uh, your accomplishment with your Iron Man, and I, I I guess my 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 point would be to to encourage everyone to, who's listens to this to go and buy the book and read it because it's it's a Watson All story, it's a fantastic book, and the achievement of going through that experience is, is phenomenal is, is there anything you wanted to kind of cover as part of that that whole ironman journey that we might have missed out in our questioning at all paul
0: i think we've you know we've talked really about the impact it had on me i, I think i didn't realize at the time what a big thing it was because i was living it and it was my friends and families you know sort of jokingly said to me you should write that down it's a great story and you're always quite humble in yourself. You know, you don't like to, I don't like to big myself up really, but I did see that actually there there was an achievement there and it it was extraordinary and and different and a story that needed telling. And, you know, there was two things there. It It was everything that we've talked about today about living your life and, and not taking things for granted. And the other side was to provide information to the, cancer community that was part of Mm. about that whole journey and what you could expect you know and and potentially how you might think about dealing with it and you know I had no idea of a concept called prehab we've all heard of rehab after you've had an accident or an injury Mm. prehab is obviously you know doing the fitness and the physio before you um, have um, your operation and in reality that's what I was doing and I didn't realise that and the importance of that and the importance of being fit and healthy for what's coming in your life and what's coming that you're not aware of yet yourself, um, is is really important and I wanted to make that point and I wanted to get that story out there. And you know, and that's where the book comes from. It's come from the heart, it's it's as I said before, it's a story which is a hundred percent and um, me there's no embellishments in it it's just as it was and if anybody can take something from that then you know that's fantastic so yeah thank you for your words about the book i really appreciate that
2: no i, I genuinely mean it it's it's a fantastic book uh I, you know just rereading it again this weekend's brought it all back to be honest prehab's not an expression i've ever heard of and um I, i've taken a lot away from this chat paul today so thank you very much for your time but I, just this notion of preparing for stuff that might be coming around the corner is you know, something that's massively uh, part of my life as well. So I'm definitely going to take that away and uh, um, use it as more encouragement for, for, for my journey as well. So thank you very much for that.
0: Brilliant. Well, it's been fantastic to chat to you guys.
1: Well, before we finish, I, um, I'd love to sort of know what your ideal next 40 years are going to be.
0: more of the same to be honest i you know as each uh, each milestone i would like to do a triathlon of some description i'd like to think i'll still be doing challenging events into the future my next challenge this year that i'm toying with is an ultramarathon that the reality is once you've done an Ironman, man that's it there's nothing else where do you go from there you know if you're going to challenge yourself what what do you challenge yourself with I'm quite liking the idea of the mental and physical challenge of a long distance ultra. Mm. So that's next on the book, you know, in, in my book. So let's see, let's see where that journey takes me, but it is about st- staying fit and healthy but actually enjoying it as well not just doing it for the for the sake of the fitness but doing it because you're enjoying it and you're you're getting a personal challenge and 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 getting something out of it so that's where i am i'm a lot more relaxed now about um the events i go in in for you know i just enjoy the personal challenge of doing them and um, I'm hoping that, that I can continue that as long as it as long as I live, really. And um, and hopefully, when I'm an old man, I'll still I'll be the one still out jogging, and um and 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 doing some of these events. So fingers crossed. That's what I'm that's what I'm looking forward to.
2: Well, here's what we need to do. We need to book in a time once you've done your ultra, and we'll get you back on the podcast, and we can talk about how, how that's gone and uh, hear all about your new stories. That that'd be fantastic. And I know it's cliche, but you made a great point there. It's it's not just about enjoying getting to the destination. It's it's enjoying the journey along the way, isn't it? I think in, in all walks of life. And I think if people were more present and looked at it from their phones and looked outside as to what's going on, there's a hell of a lot more going out there that they could enjoy um, along the journey as well, I think. And Absolutely. I, I've got one final question for, from me. Uh, Paul, if I can as well. And uh, it's simpler this: if you could go back to 18-year-old Paul Smith and give him one piece of advice based on all of your experiences over the last couple of decades or how many years it's been, what 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 do you think that might be? If you could go back in time,
0: don't be so fucking lazy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I'll need any more than that, to be honest. Brilliant. Um, there we are. Yeah, definitely.
2: I shall pass that yeah, on to yeah. my teenage son, Paul. I think that'll come quite handy. Yeah, as there as you well. go.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's what it's all boiled down to. <laughs> Correct. Correct. Amazing.
2: Absolutely brilliant.
1: Amazing. Well, we'll listen look from from me, Paul. It's, uh, look, I think it's such an inspirational story. But you know, and obviously the the physical accomplishment's amazing. But I think I think the lessons from from the journey are absolutely unbelievable and um uh you know getting to know you a little bit is is has been fantastic and you know obviously it's it's a really unique story that you've got but I think at the same time it's, it's how you've manifested that as a person and uh you know being around you is really positive so yeah just wanted to say thank you well thanks very much it's been an absolute pleasure
2: I couldn't agree more with everything you just said, and I just echo what what Ad said there. And thank you for your time, Paul. We look forward to seeing you next time you're over this way, which I'm sure will be at some point. And uh, like, it's such an inspiring read. Uh, it's you know, dead man to iron man. It's such an inspiration uh, to anyone in a similar position or anyone that's battling anything in their lives. They can take inspiration from this, and there are numerous messages in there that you can use uh, for in all walks of life. so Thank you for spending the time documenting it and thank you for spending your time with us today and we look forward to seeing you when you've done your Ultra. Thank you. Take care, buddy. Speak to you soon.
1: Cheers. Bye-bye. Wow, what a conversation. How did you find that?
2: What a guy, honestly. It's such an inspiring story. Um, having read the book and heard that story there during the podcast, I mean, you can just hear what, what a unique approach to such a devastating diagnosis and and what an attitude. I think for me, it's just amazing how someone can take
1: such a positive approach to such a bad situation and turn it into a life changing event for the better. Obviously he's always going to have, um, the potential of it coming back, coming over him, but he keeps himself fit and he's now doing what he wants to be doing, keeping his stress levels lower. I think it's a real inspiration.
2: I completely agree. I I loved it when he was talking about why me? Well, why not me? Why should it be some child in a hospital? You know, he was 43 years old. Why shouldn't it be him? It's such a refreshing approach. And to hear him speak of now, you know, would he change that diagnosis on on, on who he is today and and the person he's become? And the answer was no. It's astonishing, isn't it, really? Absolutely. Well... I hope you enjoyed the podcast with Paul Smith. If you like what you heard, please I can't recommend his book "Dead Man to Iron Mine" available in all good bookshops and online e-commerce sites anymore. It's such a great read. It's it's I think there are pages where you laugh and cry on the same page. It's it's, it's a riveting story. You heard a snippet of it today. Uh, please go and read the book. It's such a fascinating, inspiring read. Absolutely.
1: And coming up on There's Another Way podcast, we've got some exciting guests lined up. Uh, please remember to subscribe uh, and keep looking out for new podcasts coming up. We've got really interesting conversations uh, coming with uh, people from all walks of life, including music, athletics, yoga, business, uh, football. Really interesting stuff coming up.
2: Thanks for listening, guys, and speak to you soon. There's Another Way.